0: I want to welcome everybody here. It's Labor Day weekend. I'm glad you're joining with us. If you're watching at home online, either now or later on in the week, we're so glad you're tuning in. We are in the middle of this series, Tip of the Iceberg. I love that video. Doesn't it do a great job, make you really uncomfortable, and to want to elbow your spouse or the person you came with today? I recommend you keep your elbows to yourself and make everybody's Sunday experience much, much better. But as we're jumping into today, there are many verses that kind of create the foundation for this. Let's just look at one of them real quick. This is out of Jesus' mouth in Luke chapter 6, verse 45. It says this, a good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. And an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. The mouth speaks what the heart is full of. I, uh, I've got this little analogy here. i got two little cups. People saw me walking through the hallways with these uh, before the last service, and they're like, oh, what are you up to today, man? Well, I want you to imagine for just a moment that um, you come home from work And your spouse came home from wherever they come home from, maybe they were working, maybe they just had a longer busy day, whatever, maybe they were off the day, or maybe they don't have a job, and you're single working home, whatever it is, and um, there's a stressful moment, because they've had whatever going on in their day, and you've had whatever going on in your day, and you're still carrying the stuff you've got from your day, and they've got the stuff they're carrying from their day, and this person had one set of expectations about how a thing was going to go. And this person had another set of expectations about how things were going to go. Does this describe your life to anybody else in the room at the moment? And so this person walks in the door and this person asks a question and maybe they ask something as simple as, uh, hey, did you, um, did you remember to grab milk on your way home? Or perhaps uh, this person walks in the door and says, is dinner ready yet? Or this person says, hey, what are we doing for dinner? And this person expected dinner to be ready. Or maybe something like that happens, and you walk in, and um, nobody's talked about it at all, so now everybody's hungry and frustrated. And then what happens at that moment is... And what we find in these moments is what is inside us is what comes out of us. How many times have you told your children when they come home not to throw their backpack on the ground or not to come all right in the door and turn on the video games until they've done their homework or not to throw their clothes on the floor when they change clothes or fill in the blank, right? And then they didn't do the thing you asked them to do. And all of a sudden, and what is in you is what? What comes out of you? It's the most obvious illustration of the world. Let's just go ahead and pray and end our day today. Except for we have this question that we kind of started to bring up last week. So how do I make sure that I fill my heart so that good things are coming out? Because what is in me is what will come out of me When tension happens, when stress happens, what is in me is what will come out of me. What I want to do today is I just want to continue down this journey and begin to give you wisdom about how to make sure that your cup is filled with the things that you want it to be filled with. Now, what I want to do is I want to take you to a passage in the Bible. We're actually going to look at a book, two different chapters today in that book. It's the book of Isaiah not a book you probably pick up and study very often. And if you don't have any background or a good study Bible, I don't necessarily recommend you pick up this book because it's going to confuse you with what it says. But I want to look at some wisdom in the book and then try to walk through some things. Now, first chapter we're going to be in is Isaiah chapter 30. Isaiah chapter 30. And I recommend you open up a Bible there if you know how to use the Bible, if you have one here provided for us, if you have one at home. But all the verses will be here on the screen for you. Now, I gotta set up the book of Isaiah. The book of, book of Isaiah was written by the prophet Isaiah roughly 700 to 800 years before Jesus shows up on the scene. So that gives you some idea where we are almost 3,000 years ago. And he wrote this book to the Israelites. The Israelites are the people of God. Now, many prophets have come along and warned Israel to return to God. The word return is literally the word repent. There's a couple Hebrew words, but it's often the word shub or shuv, and it literally means. To do, in an army term, and about face. You were going this direction, you've turned away from me, God says, now turn back. The whole idea is that God had a face-to-face, intimate relationship with the people of God, the Israelites, and he wants to have that relationship with them. But they've turned their back on him and turned to other nations. Now, the way this often played out for Israel is they would have a king come into power, and as the king of Israel uh, came into power, if he was a good king, he'd lead the people to do good things. If he was an evil king, he'd lead the people to do evil things. And the way that this would work often... Is that king, over time, would see the opportunity for money or power or greed, and he'd build a relationship with the other nations. So what would happen is uh, another army would be threatening Israel, and the king would make a relationship with another nation and say, hey, will you protect us? Will you watch out for us? Will you get our back? And this would make God very upset for a couple reasons. Number one, because God wanted to be the provider for Israel. He wanted to protect them, to take care of them. He wanted to love them and shower them with kindness and good things. But he often let these armies kind of rise up in order to test the legitimacy and the, and, and the strength of Israel's faith. Now, when Israel made these deals with these other nations, what would happen is slowly those other nations' gods would creep into Israel. In fact, if you were to read later in Isaiah, I think it's around Isaiah 44, 45, You'll find God, he basically has this conversation. He actually says something to the effect of, come let us reason together. Let's sit down and have a conversation. Let's see if what you're doing makes any sense. And then he goes through this whole process of idol making. Think about it for a second. The guy who made the idol, he took a tree that maybe he planted the seed and maybe he grew. And then he chopped it down. Then he took half that wood and he used it to build a table. And he took half part of that wood and he used it to build fire that he ate food off of. Then he took some of that wood and he put gold over it. And now you're worshiping that piece of wood. Does that make any sense? And this is the point that God's saying, like, guys, you're turning to these foreign nations for your hope, I'm your hope. You're turning to these foreign nations for your strength. I'm your strength. You're turning somewhere else. And the reason that you're turning there is because you're afraid. Because you've lost sight of me. So consequently, when life gets hard and there's stress in your job or COVID happens or the budget's down or your health is compromised, what's in you is what will come out of you. But see, God wanted to do in Israel what he wants to do in you today. But you have greater resources than Israel had because God wants to bring Israel into a relationship where they could trust him. Look at this Isaiah chapter 30, verse 15. And repentance and rest is your salvation. And quietness and trust is your strength. How powerful those four words. Let's just dig into them quickly. And repentance. In walking with me, doing the right thing, even when it's hard or doesn't make sense. So somebody else comes at you, just like the nations, the foreign nations came at Israel. And instead of not trusting God and acting out of your flesh and just doing whatever you want, you're going to do what God has asked you to do. You're going to treat your enemies the way Jesus tells us to treat our enemies, to be merciful as God is merciful, loving as God is loving, kind as God is kind, forgiving as God is forgiving. And the only way you could do that is by saying, God, the behaviors and the tricks that I've learned to survive in life, they just aren't going to cut it. They just aren't working. God, I need you. I need you to fill my cup. And then in rest, how many of you throughout a stressful season, you find the thing you do the least is rest? This seems to be so common. Now, I know there are some of you that maybe the opposite is true for you. Things get stressful, you shut down, you you go to the whatever, the bedroom, shut the door and take a nap. I don't know. But for most of us, when things get hard, we try harder, right? And part of what God is telling the Israelites is, I want you to just trust me. I want you to rest me. That doesn't mean don't work hard. That doesn't mean don't be wise. But one of the great sins of the Western culture is that because we have created these systems and these technologies where it's like, got to get better, got to get more efficient. Efficiency is one of the greatest sins of the Western culture because efficiency means you can't lose a moment. As if sitting is a problem. My wife will often look at me and say, you don't sit well. And she's right, I don't sit well. But I'm better today than I was when I met her 22 years ago. And I'm so thankful I'm learning to rest my my heart, my body, my soul, my mind in God. That God is going to take care of it. That I can go home at night and put my phone down. I don't have to respond to every comment out there. I don't have to deal with every issue out there. I can actually just trust that God is for me. So who can be against me? And then he goes on and he says, in quietness and in trust is your strength. See, oftentimes quietness and trust feels like weakness. And that's our problem. We think our greatest human efforts are greater than God's. So we fill our cup with all kinds of human effort instead of with God himself. A lady, I think, I think her name is Candice Perp, she wrote a book years ago, and uh, she was dealing with the world of trauma care and the way that affects the brain. And she wrote a book, and she said this phenomenal thing. If you find a behavior you don't like Look below the behavior, you'll find a fear. Look below that fear, you'll find a wound. In other words, if you really want to change the way you behave, you have to go back and heal the wound. Now, beyond that, the question is, what exactly does that mean? And I actually think God leads us to that in the book of Isaiah. This is the beginning of it walking with God, resting with God, quietness before God, trust in God, there is your strength. There is the beginning of your healing. You have to first say, what is coming out of me might not be the best thing. What's coming out of me might not be what God wants for me. But notice the last part of this verse, in verse 15. But you would have none of it. This is a verse of encouragement with a rebuke at the end. I wanted to give you all these things, but you didn't want anything to do with it. Now, why is it that most of us know this is true, but don't do anything about it? Why is it we keep having the same silly fights with the people that we love over and over and over again and nothing is changing? Why is that? Have you noticed that? And it might just be that your response to a situation is perpetuating a situation. I'm not blaming you for other people's problems. Because they have their problems, right? But what if what God is trying to do is reveal something to you by the way things keep happening over and over and over again, and then ask this question, why is it nothing is changing? And here's the little adage, you ready? Most of us don't change until the pain of changing becomes greater than the pain of staying the way we are, because change is painful. It hurts. If change were easy, everybody would do it, right? But you keep having this Fight with your spouse, you keep having this fight with your kids, you keep having this fight with your neighbors or with your boss or with your coworkers or whatever it is. And, ah, what is going on here? Well, the reality is, when the pain gets great enough, you'll finally do whatever you have to do to make it stop. And so, what I have seen over and over and over again is God leads us to this place. In fact, biblical scholars call this disorientation, orientation, reorientation. And the entire book of Isaiah is this. I said it backwards. It's orientation, disorientation, reorientation. Orientation, I get used to life going a certain way. I get comfortable with a happening in a certain fashion. And so what happens is in order for God to grow me, he's got to increase the pain. He's got to blow something up in my life so that I become disoriented and I start going, ah! Wait a minute, what's happening? And I start trying to figure it out. And when I finally come to him in quietness and trust, I find the center my heart, and say, God, I need your power, your strength, your wisdom, your insight. I need to know what you want for me in this situation. Then all of a sudden I get reoriented around a new way of doing things. But you can't stay there long because growth comes in the change. The next stage of your growth actually comes in the painful disorientation of what's about to happen. And in Israel, what God had to do was he had to send in Assyria, who then was conquered by Babylon, who then was conquered by Persia who then was conquered by Greece and then by Rome and then Jesus came and so it was consecutive years after years after years after years after years years of no longer being free but being in captivity that led them back to their knees to say God help us in the book leadership pain love this book There's a quote, it says, change is hard because people overestimate the value of what they have and they underestimate the value of what they gain by giving that up. Just a thought today. What if, what if, whatever you're going through, whatever this tip of the iceberg that you're seeing and experiencing is, what if God is allowing you to see it so that you'll find a new way forward? Well, in Isaiah 43... God comes along, and he's telling the Israelites about this process. What's crazy is they've already been, at this point, Isaiah 43, they've already been conquered by Assyria, and Babylon is coming in and it's not going to go the way they think it's going to be 70 years of captivity it's going to be hard they're going to be carried off in fact many people were carried off 500 to 900 miles away from Jerusalem some are left behind like Daniel Shadrach Meshach and Abednego they're they're left behind to kind of work through these issues with Babylon in there but God is telling them even though it's going to get bad even though it's going to be painful even though things are going to get hard I'm not done with you. In fact, I'm going to send in a guy named Cyrus, and he's going to do some bad things. I'm going to hold him accountable for that too. But I'm doing it. I'm the one who's doing it. And then he says this in Isaiah 43, 18. I want you to forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I'm doing a new thing. Now, it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. What a powerful statement from God. I want you not to dwell on what came before this. I was doing something different then. Now I'm doing something new and I want to do it through you. And even though it's going to feel like wilderness, it's going to feel like a dry season, it's going to feel like pain, I'm going to bring water to your soul, to your heart, to your mind. I'm doing something new and beautiful. If only you could see it and perceive it. In other words, embrace it. The reality for most of us is this. Whatever wounds have got you to the place where out of fear you started to behave a certain way. In life, you're either getting bitter or you're getting better. You have a choice to make. The things that are in here do not have to define you. They don't have to stay as your identity. What God wants to do is Join with you in this process of helping you see and understand and realize what he is up to in this world and through these situations in your life. As we just sang, if you tuned into our worship online, it was we just saying, there was never a day you were not by my side. There was never a day. There was never a day. Do you believe that? What Israel is experiencing, in my guess, is far more painful than what most of us have gone through. There may be exceptions in this room. But God's reminder to them is, I never left you, I never forsake you, I never abandoned you, I never quit on you, and I knew exactly what I was doing with you in the midst of it all. See, the way I start to put different things in my cup is I start to see God in a different way. I start to see God as a willing partner who wants me to grow. The language we would use in the church today is he wants me to become more like Jesus Christ. Take a look with me. Isaiah chapter 30 again, verse 18. God says, yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you. Let's just stop for a second. How many of you were raised in a home or an environment where you were taught or believed that God couldn't wait to discipline you or punish you? How many of you walking in here today thought, man, the reason I'm not coming to church, or maybe you're sitting at home, the reason you haven't stepped foot in the building is because you thought this place would burn down if you showed up. Somebody laughed, but you know what? We have heard that so many times. And what that tells me is there are a lot of people out there carrying a lot of shame from things that have happened or things they have done. And they think that God can't wait to zap them. And sometimes the pain in life, look, see, I tried to do this once. I tried to honor God in my marriage. I tried to honor God in my business. But look at all these things. It's just proof that God doesn't care. But what God says about himself is he longs to be gracious to you. Longs, longs. His longing is to care for you. Therefore, he will rise up to show you discipline. Discipline. Is that what it says? He will rise up to hurt you. Is that what it says? He will rise up to show you compassion. For the Lord is a God of justice, and blessed are all who wait for him. In other words, he's watching what's happening to you at every moment. He's seeing what those other armies are doing, and even though he's allowing it to happen as he disorients you so he can reorient you into a new way of life, he's doing it for your good. Look at the next verse, verse 19. People of Zion who live at Jerusalem, you will weep no more. How gracious he will be when you cry for help. As soon as he hears, he will answer Do you see the way God is picturing himself? He's on standby waiting to talk to you. He's waiting for you to reach out in humility and say, help me, God. I don't know how to fix this. I don't know how to make a stop. I just know that this moment, this situation, this pain keeps happening over and over and over again. And I keep trying to deal with it in the same way as always have. And it keeps giving me the same results. So God, help me. Now, I have permission to share this story, but... There's a a young couple that's about to get married, and I'm doing their premarital counseling. Now, when I do premarital counseling, and I don't get to do it much anymore, but when I do premarital counseling, I try to irritate the couple to no end, which is great because it's like my own marriage, but I try to get this couple to fight. I want them to fight, and I want them to bicker, and I want them to, to do it in front of me a little bit, and the reason I do is because when I'm not there, I can't help coach them. And so I want to teach them about repentance. I want to teach them about forgiveness. I want to teach them about what's happening and understanding the depths of this. And I have permission to share this. And so this couple that I've been working with, there's, some, there's a fight in particular that they keep having over and over and over again related to a clean house. I know, a couple of people laugh. Nobody in here has ever had that fight with their spouse before. But one of them has a very specific idea about what a clean house is and what role the The fiance ought to be playing in that. And the other person has a completely different idea about that. And also, often just has a different idea about the way it ought to play out that day. And we're getting together, we're talking about it, and I'm asking annoying questions, and I'm creating fights, and I'm doing the thing that I try to do and hope that it's helpful. And it's a lot of fun. You should sign up sometime. But anyway, (laughs) I asked the one spouse, the wife, to be, said, what is this drive you have? What is the fear that if your house isn't spotless, what is driving this behavior that is creating this fight over and over and over again? I don't know, I'm not sure. I said, well, look, what I want you to do is below that fear, whatever that fear is of not measuring up and not being good enough, whatever, there's something below that. And that's the thing we want to heal. God longs to assist you in this. God longs to be your partner in this. He wants to reveal to you because he doesn't want disunity in your future marriage. He doesn't long for that. And then the next day, first thing in the morning, I got this message that I have permission to share with you. She wrote me this. Yesterday, after we talked, I told myself I needed some time to self-reflect. I needed to find out about my fears and my wounds and I really needed to dig deep, but I didn't put much thought into it yet. We just ate dinner. My friend came over and my fiance and I just tried to comfort her as her twin brother had just committed suicide. But when she left, we were tired and we just went to bed. So I didn't have time to sit with God and self-reflect. I wasn't able to dig deep like I wanted to. Well, this morning at 2.20 a.m., I randomly woke up dead out of my sleep and I just thought to myself, mom, and immediately clicked. When I was younger and when it was just dad and I, I feel like I didn't have control over not having a mom. Of course I wanted a mom. I wanted that bond with someone. I wanted a mom to teach me how to do my makeup and my hair. And I was upset seeing my friends with their moms and the special bond they had. Hopefully that makes sense. I feel as if I had, to control over, I had control over something, so I turned that into cleaning and cooking and taking care of my dad. It stuck with me throughout my life, and I feel like even now I turn to that rather than dealing with my feelings and own self-consciousness, which leads to my next point. I'm still not good at doing my makeup. I can't paint my own nails. I can't do my hair. So oftentimes, I don't feel like a woman. I don't feel feminine. I don't feel pretty or beautiful or worthy. I also don't feel like I'm good enough. Let's just stop for a minute before I read the rest of what she said. I was able to respond to her fiance and say, oh my goodness, she is giving you an unbelievable amount of insight right now into her heart and the wounds that she's carrying out. Praise God that you are marrying a woman who is even willing to go to these places but think about what you get to do for the next 20 years in restoring her heart. You get to fill her cup with beauty. You get to get her makeup classes and, and, and go, go cooking classes with her. Think about all the things you could do to love her and serve her and meet her needs in those wounds. So, men, a little extra for your money today. All right, here we go. She goes on. She says, but I don't. I do know how to decorate. I know how to be crafty. I know how to clean a house, even though I know that's standard, and it's what I'm good at. So I feel like even now I do those things so that I feel worthy, like it makes me a woman. I take pride in my home. It makes me feel safe and feminine. I know my fiancé likes our home, how our home is decorated. He appreciates how clean it is, and he compliments me when I'm creative. So I feel as if I do those things and I obsess over them to feel like my fiancé is happy with me because I'm self-conscious a lot of the time, thinking he should have someone more beautiful, more feminine. But I know it's just my own thoughts doing that to me. I'm just putting that in my head when it doesn't actually even need to be there. The enemy makes me makes me believe that he must think that about me too. If I'm thinking those things about myself, in a way, I feel like it goes back to my childhood and my own self-consciousness. It all made sense when I woke up at two o'clock this morning, which I know was the Holy Spirit because I didn't even have time to think about it. It just woke me up and all of a sudden it all made sense. I even stayed up to tell him, the fiance, because he wakes up at 3 a.m. for work every morning. I was just excited and grateful for the Holy Spirit, how clear it was to me, and I still am, and I've been waiting to tell you, I just didn't want to message you at 3 a.m. this morning, which I'm thankful for. What do I do with all of this? Let me just pause and make this point, right? So if you're watching at home, I want you to think about this for a second. Could the pain that you have experienced around a particular behavior be God's way of getting your attention? Could it be the tension you've been having with a person that you love or perhaps somebody who just drives you crazy at work, could that be God's way of trying to reveal in you something that he wants to replace with himself? Think of this. Isaiah chapter 30, verse 20. God said, or Isaiah said, although the Lord gives you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, Your teachers will be hidden no more. With your own eyes, you will see them. Great. Thank you very much for the passage, Pastor. What in the world do I do with that? It's very simple. One day I was at um, lunch with a pastor to pastors by the name of Dr. Walker. And I was really struggling with some stuff going on here at the church in my own life, family. And I was just sharing that stuff with them. And he quoted this passage to me. Now, I'd read the passage two or three, five times, I don't know, in my life, but I just always skipped over it because I didn't know what to do with it. And he said, Matt, think about this for a second. Adversity and affliction can be a gift from God. Though the Lord gives you the bread of adversity, he's feeding you with hard times. And the water of affliction, he's giving you the drink of pain. Your teachers won't be hidden no more. In other words, Israel, though it looks like you don't know where God is, you don't know what he's up to, you're not sure he's tuning in, you're not sure if he cares, is he paying attention, what do I do next? It will not be this way forever. You will move from orientation, this comfort, to disorientation, this I -I don't know what's happening next, I don't know what to do next, to God will grow you into a new stage of reorientation, which becomes your next stage of orientation, which eventually will lead to what? Disorientation, because God loves you. One guy, I think his name is Walter Brueggemann. He's an Old Testament scholar. He says two-thirds of the Psalms are disorientation. They are literally the psalmist crying out in a stage of growth and transformation where life is hard. They're like, God, where are you? What are you doing? Why aren't you doing this? Two-thirds of the Psalms are giving you voice, something to read in your pain and say, God, I know you're doing something. I know you haven't left me. I know you haven't quit on me, but this hurts. This hurts. But it's because God is faithful. Did you know that if a butterfly, when it comes from the caterpillar stage into the cocoon before it emerges, people have actually done this. They've tried to cut open the the little cocoon and let the butterfly out. And did you know the butterfly will die? That it has to. It's the pushing against the cocoon. It's the working of its way out that actually gives its wings the strength that when it makes it out of the cocoon, it can fly. There's a guy, a billionaire, who ended up building something called the Biosphere 2, because Biosphere 1 was the earth, and the goal was to make a mini earth. And there were many things we were going to learn from it. And the goal is maybe whatever lessons we could learn, they invested hundreds of millions of dollars into this thing. They tried to recreate the ecosystem so that maybe one day we could go to Mars or the moon or wherever, and maybe we could create like a mini earth in those places. And one of the, some of the things really worked, but one of the things that failed is they found that trees can't grow in that environment, The roots don't go deep enough that it's actually the pressure of the wind against the tree that allows it to have the strength to do what a tree is supposed to do. Could it be that your heavenly father longs to be faithful to you and he's using the pain you're feeling to grow you? So what do we do with all of this in light of all of this? Well, I believe if you're going to have something good come out of you, you have to put something good inside you. And it's got to be better than what you had going in. And this is why you need Jesus. See, Jesus Christ is the only person who ever faithfully obeyed God He's the only person that, while he was being crucified, was able to look at others and say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Even though I have the power to call down all of the angels of heaven right now and smite these people, I'm not going to. I'm gonna go all the way in obedience to you. I'm gonna walk with you faithfully. I'm gonna trust my life to you to do the right thing, even if it costs me, because that's what pleases you. But see, when we come to Jesus... We're asking Jesus to fill us up with what we need. This is why when we go into the waters of baptism, it's a picture of death. You go into the waters and this mysterious thing happens. You die in the water and you come up out of the waters alive and now filled with God in Christ inside you. Did you know we have seven people that are scheduling their baptism right now at Kingsway? Isn't that amazing? But why not you? I mean, if you're sitting at home right now, why not just text 317-565-4911. Because you can't do this on your own. You know how I know? Because you haven't done it yet. You've been trying and trying and trying, but the strength you need, the power you need to both have the grace inside you and the ability to give it away can't come from inside you. It has to come from something outside you that transforms you from the inside out. So the answer is, fill your cup with the grace of God. God found in Jesus Christ. That's your answer. In fact, a guy named Peter, and I promise I'm almost done here. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, Peter says this, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Notice that word there? Grow. Like a tree whose roots need to go down deep, grow. You don't just arrive at this location. It takes time to grow in grace and knowledge, meaning you have to continue to learn more. You have to continue to humility, humility yourself. That's good English. Humble yourself before God and say, God, I need your help. And the best way to do that is any point where you're experiencing tension, say, God, why does this issue keep coming up? What in me needs to die so that you can come alive? But it's a continual process of growth. All right, Isaiah chapter 30, verse 21. I want to close with this encouragement to you. God is not wanting to discipline you. God is not wanting to punish you. God is wanting to grow you. Isaiah 30, 21. God says, whether you turn to the right or to the left, your ears will hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. This is a reference to the Holy Spirit. See, when you get filled up with Jesus Christ, God gives you that voice. It'll irritate you because it'll point out all the ways that you need help. When you're in some tense moment or fight, and all of a sudden you hear this voice saying, You know, why don't you um, lower your voice and walk away? Why don't you just stop and try to understand why this person's frustrated? Why don't you um, slow down for a minute and quit arguing that you're right? Find out if you might be wrong. Even if you're right, why don't you just hug this person and tell them how special you are and how much you love them? Why don't you be the first to say you're sorry? These are the kinds of things the Spirit keeps reminding me because God has filled my cup with himself. So he keeps trying to change me from the inside out. And I so desperately want that from you. So what we're going to do now is we're going to go into communion. Listen, if you're at home, grab some bread and juice right now. And here's the thing. I'm going to start a prayer, and then I'm going to hand it to you. And when you're ready, take the bread and the juice. But let me just say this real quick about communion to prepare our hearts. I was watching this video yesterday, hanging out with my kids. I was listening to it while we were playing at the water and catching frogs and trying to find crawdads and all that stuff. And I was listening to this video on communion, and this guy said, Go study the first 300 years of church history. There is this mystery about communion, and what happened is through the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s and 1600s, we tried to explain everything. But there are just certain things we can't explain. They just are. You ever try to explain the Trinity to somebody? Good luck. Communion is one of those moments. While this is not literal bread and literal juice, there is something literally happening. This is a spiritual moment that I can't fully explain to you guys. I could tell you what it is, but I can't fully explain it to you because you are literally eating the bread and you are literally drinking the juice that represents the body and the blood of Jesus. And something mystical is happening in this moment. You are eating your redemption. You are drinking your redemption. You are eating your forgiveness. And that's the point. As you come into communion today, may God center your heart and your mind and your soul around who Jesus is, because once you have that inside of you, that's what will start to come out of you. So as you eat this and as you drink this, may God transform your heart so that you begin to reorient your life around who Jesus is and not what you want. Let's pray. Father, I don't know that I'll fully understand this mystery called communion until we get to heaven, but I don't want to lose it either. I want to embrace the mystery of this bread and this juice. So Jesus, we thank you for giving up your body on the cross. So we thank you that when your blood was spilled out, this juice now represents that. And yet, Father, this is some form of mystery. We Thank you, Father, for the way that you have loved us. You have given us the the bread of affliction. Father, we thank you for Jesus, for his life and for his mercy. And we pray right now, God, whatever you've been putting on our hearts, it's been our prayer all week. God, whatever we're dealing with, would you give us the strength in Jesus' name to not act out of our flesh, but instead to surrender to the spirit and act out of that. Lord, please don't let our hard times go to waste. In Jesus' name.